Yesterday, two things happened. I'm going to start with the second because it's the more poignant one and more fresh in my memory. But the two things are that I was assaulted and I was scammed. The part about being assaulted, a couple of weeks ago, I ran into an old friend just by chance. I was down by the river and I saw an old friend of mine. We used to go clubbing together. This is back in the 90s. He helped with Submedia, the company that I co-founded in the late 90s and worked on in the early 2000s and, and so far and so forth. We said, hey, let's get together. So that was a couple of weeks ago. So we, we decided last night to meet at a bar. I'm going to say as an aside here, this is the first time since March that I entered, no, I wasn't going to enter a bar, that I was considering eating at an establishment or even being in an establishment. So I was ready to walk away if it wasn't clearly outdoors, clearly with lots of space. If there were people there, if there was any sign of non-social distancing or not wearing masks, I wasn't going to go there. As I approached, the place was basically empty. There was space between people. My friend wore a mask. I wore a mask. Everyone wore masks. I wasn't going to eat there because I'm not eating doof, and that's what bars have. And I didn't feel like having alcohol because I'm working on being more fit. Anyway, so I get there, and it was distance. It was outdoor, nearly empty, lots of space. I meet my friend. We talked for about an hour. It was a lot about how I transitioned. He picked up on doing all this environmental stuff. And he said, you know, you weren't so environmental before. What led to all this change? And I talked about how the TEDx talks were leading to a TV show and all this stuff. It was really exciting. As an aside, I should mention that he remarked on knowing my regular background, going out and having fun at clubs and starting businesses and stuff, that to him that made stewardship more compelling and interesting to hear, to hear, for him to hear from me than just some tree hugger out of nowhere, that that made it more relatable because it made me someone that he could listen to more. That's something I hadn't really thought of, so that was interesting. While we're talking, it's about an hour in that we're there. We're outside on 7th Avenue by 22nd Street. Some guy starts rooting through a trash can on the street. This is maybe 15 feet away from me, five meters away. And I'm looking at I see this happening. And I say to Dave, like, this is how trash gets all over the place. Because he knows, like, I pick up trash. I picked up a bunch of pieces of trash on the way over there. But he's not just rooting through the trash. He's throwing it up and throwing it out all over the street. So I remark on this. And I, I step up and I'm going to walk over because I'm thinking I'm just going to put the trash back in the can. I'm not going to interact with the guy, but I'm going to make a show of this. But then I think, no, I don't want to interact. I don't even want to get close to some. I don't know what's going on when someone is throwing trash in the street for no reason. I sit back down. A few moments pass. And then he starts yelling at us, threatening us. And he picks up a bottle and throws it at us. Now, Dave happened to be fresh from a kickboxing class. That's my friend. So he stands up, kind of chest out, and advances toward the guy, not threateningly, but standing his ground. And the guy is yelling back. And at this point, the guy points at me. I'm sitting down. I asked Dave why later would he point at me and start looking at me. Dave was like, well, because I was the one who was more threatening. So he's going to look at me, the less threatening. I'm just sitting there thinking maybe this will pass. I'm not really sure. But he throws that bottle. It shatters on the wall behind us. And the guy leaves. Dave is kind of thinking, should I pursue the guy or not? But he comes and sits back down, and we just start talking again. And possibly that's the end of it. We're not really sure. Until about five minutes later, the guy comes back, and he's got a head of steam. I mean, he had a head of steam before. He's like yelling in broken Spanish and English. Is he homeless? I can't really tell because he's got a bag on his back, and it looks like a, something he paid for. He looks fairly fit. He doesn't look homeless. People are looking at us at this, not looking, I mean, they're looking at this interaction. He comes back and he's got a new bottle in his hand. And he looks at us, and I don't know what he's saying because it's like a lot in Spanish. 
and he rails back like a pitcher, like arm all the way back, and he steps forward and throws it as hard as he can. And I'm thinking, no, no time to get out of the way, but I also don't really want to flinch because this is like a big confrontation. Luckily, the guy's got really ba- lousy aim. I mean, I felt liquid come and hit me as the bottle goes by over my head and over Dave's head, shatters against the wall really loud. Everybody's looking. At this point, Dave gets up and goes right up to the guy. The guy's yelling at Dave. And of course, when Dave goes up to the guy, I walk up right behind Dave. So I'm like right behind his right shoulder. Dave is like, what's going on, man? What's going on? You, you know, and the guy is like, well, and he's yelling at the guy in Spanish. Now, Dave, I happen to know, let's say, I think he went to Yale. I'm pretty sure he was born in the United States, but he, I mean, he's Asian, or he's of Asian descent. And the guy's yelling at the guy, you don't belong here, it's not your country. But he's half in English, half in Spanish. Dave is like calm, but standing his ground. After a bit of this going back and forth, and the guy's kind of going back and forth between giving his attention to Dave and giving his attention to me, the guy eventually realizes like he's not, the threatening isn't really working. So he crosses 7th Avenue and starts leaving. Dave doesn't stop. He's like, hey, man, where are you going? Why, why are you running away? So now we're at the corner of the guy crossed 7th Avenue going north. So now he's diagonal across the street. He's going north on 7th Avenue on the other side of it, uh, which is to say the east side. We're on the west side. And Dave is going up ahead saying, where are you going? Where are you going? And he's like pointing at his chin. He's saying, I'll give you a free shot. Take your first shot. All you want right here. What, why are you running away? Why are you running away? Are you scared? Stuff like that. And the guy's going away, but he's still yelling back at us. He's still threateningly yelling back at us. So now Dave is running north on the west side of 7th Avenue. And eventually he, gets, he runs ahead of the guy, parallel, crosses 7th Avenue. So now he is now farther north of the guy. And now I'm trailing right behind him. So now I'm right next to Dave. Dave starts, what's going on, man? What's going on? And the guy's like, ah, yelling, yelling, yelling. Half in Spanish, mostly in Spanish. And at this point, it becomes clear what's going on. The guy is saying, as best I can understand, that he, now I'm going to say this calmly, but he in no way said anything remotely calmly or anything other than with his fists up in the air. I mean, his fists are in the air the entire time. And he says, you guys make fun of me or something. He's like, I'm going through the trash. I got nothing to do. And it dawns on us that he was going through the trash looking for food. And I believe that he thought that we were making fun of him or something, whatever he thought was not what was happening, but he thought, you know, he felt probably ashamed. And we start feeling, both Dave and I, as we later look back at the moment, a minute or two later, we felt compassion for the guy. And we realized he's not crazy in the sense of just some random guy crazily throwing trash up in the air for no reason. He is crazy, though, that the way to resolve that if you are going through the trash and you feel bad, to throw bottles and yell and threaten fisticuffs and say someone doesn't belong in your country to, I believe, an American-born citizen, that's crazy in its own way. At this point, the guy leaves, and Dave and I both, Dave lets things go, and I'm with Dave, and so we start walking back. So we start heading back to the bar. By now, the co- a co- people are calling 911 when this was happening, because it, it took... It was five minutes between when the guy first came to us and second came to us. And then it was like a couple minutes that we were in, um, what's the word, um, calling his bluff and having him not be violent with us, except threatening. I mean, his fist's always up in the air. So it's been a few minutes. So people, and so when we get there, the cop was just pulling up. And the cop says, did you guys see what those guys looked like? Because he doesn't know anything. And Dave is like, oh, it turns out it was just a misunderstanding. And then the cop realizes it was us. 
And he goes, are you guys hurt or anything? We're, we're fine. And he's like, okay, well, my job is done. I should also mention on the way, when we were coming back, we passed by these Con Ed guys who had been setting up their stuff to work during the night. And when they, we walked by there, they asked what was going on, and we explained to them the misunderstanding and so forth. So now we're back at the bar, and Dave's phone was on the table, so that our waiter, who was at this point cleaning up the broken glass and so forth, he gives Dave his phone, and at this point, it's over. We're heading back. Dave and I are feeling compassion, and it's, it's resolved, but I've got to point out, this guy was threatening us, throwing bottles. You heard the story. All right, now I'm going to jump to the second story. You may have heard, if you've read my, podcast, or if you've read my blog, and I, I, I may have mentioned it in a podcast or two, that today's Wednesday, July 29th. Two weeks ago, Wednesday the 15th, I swam across the Hudson River for the first time since 2008. That was 12 years ago. I just turned 49. So two weeks ago, I was just a, a week away. I was five days away from turning uh, 49. So I was 48. At nearly 50 years old, it's kind of risky to swim across the Hudson River. That's a one kilometer across. As it turned out, the current took us farther down this time. Took us, we started at Port Imperial, which is across from 65th Street, roughly. We got back on land in Manhattan at 35th Street. So it took us down 65 to 35. That's a mile and a half downstream. That's how strong the current was. We were in for about an hour. This is a major life achievement. Why am I holding back on posting about it? Why haven't I posted? Why did I wait two weeks to mention it as a main subject? Well, let me go back a couple of years. Two years ago, a guy came to visit from England, and he wanted to. He had a bike that he put pontoons on, so it would float on water. And he would go in the Thames River in London, and ride the bike around, float the bike around, picking up garbage. And it was bright yellow pontoons, so people would ask him what's going on. And he did this for publicity to show how much garbage there was. He wanted to ride the bike across the Hudson and go with me, and I was going to swim across the Hudson. Things didn't work out. There was a leak. He really wanted to talk to the Coast Guard, and I knew the Coast Guard would say he can't do it. So we ended up not doing it. That was kind of annoying. Things got kind of weird at the end because he was only here for a little bit, and we wanted to do it. Things didn't work out. Then last year, I think November or December, I gave a talk, and this guy came up to me afterward, and we had a mutual friend, and he said he really liked my work, and I liked his work, and we got to be friends. And he wanted to swim across the Hudson River too. And I said, well, great. Just I want you to know that a year and a half ago, someone talked about doing it, and it didn't happen. I don't want to get started if you don't want to do it, but if you want to do it, I want to do it because I've been wanting to do it again. He said, nothing will stop me from doing this. That was November, December, and we've been in touch ever since. We've been doing some projects together. It came down to a week or two before the date. We hadn't yet set the date, and we were, having a call, we were going to call and set the date. We start the call, and I say, all right, let's, we, a few pleasantries, how's it going, and so forth. And I say, okay, let's talk about the date and the time, because I've been looking up the title charts to see when the current, oh, man. You know, I took sailing lessons a couple of years ago, and I was asking people about, sorry for the digression here. I was asking sailors about tides. Whether you know this or not, the, the Hudson River goes upstream and downstream. In fact, the, the tide, salt water apparently reaches all the way up to Albany. So here's my question to you. When is the current stationary, or when there's no current in the Hudson River? Is it high tide, low tide, or in between? All the sailors I spoke to said at, it's when it's in between. They say that's when it's really flat. That's not when it's flowing. I kept thinking, it seems to me that it flows in until high tide and then stops. So at the peak of high tide is when it would stop. And it goes out at low tide is also when it stops. And all the sailors said, no, no, it's in between. 
I'm not going to argue with sailors on current. So I took their advice and went and was in between, and I believe that's when it's strongest, and that's what seemed to have happened. So anyway, so we were going to talk. I had been looking at the title charts to figure out, I think erroneously, when the best time to go was. And I said, all right, let's talk time. And he goes, oh, Josh, I can't go. I'm like, what happened? We were planning this for months. How come you suddenly can't go? And he goes, well, I was talking to my wife, and I got two kids. I'm like, all right, I, I understand about not being able to go because you have a wife and a kids, but when in the past year were you not married? How did you not ask her until now? So this was very annoying to me. But what can I do? That's the, that's the deal. I'm, I'm not going to try to get him to go. If his, I'm not going to try to break up his marriage. Now, I really wanted to go. A friend of a friend, actually a friend of mine, well, at the time friend, you'll hear why I'm being cagey about that, is a swim instructor. My friend met this guy, and he's a swim instructor. I thought, I wonder if he could go. He lives in New Jersey, not far from here. I contacted him. We got on the phone, and I said, would you be interested in swimming across the Hudson River? And he goes, oh, my God, that's been a life project for mine. I've always wanted to swim across the Hudson River. I'm like, great. I figured out when to go. Do you want to go Wednesday morning? And he goes, yeah, I would like to go. And so he's really enthusiastic about it. I mean, he's overjoyed. And for him, it's also a life achievement. As it turns out, if I remember right, he's also certified as a lifeguard. So this is exactly the type of person you want to have if you're going to swim across the river with you. And he says he's going to bring some equipment, some flotation devices. And, and uh, he also says, in particular, that he's got a waterproof camera that he can bring. And I said, great, if you have a camera, I was going to work on trying to get a camera because, of course, I want pictures. And he goes, no, he's got one. So we're set. We're going to go on Wednesday at a certain time. We're going to meet and go across. Now, in between when we set that and when it happens, I record with Joe DeSena, the founder of the Spartan Race, and we have this great conversation where I'm talking about swimming across the Hudson, all my burpees, and taking the rowing machine up to the roof, which means going up 11 flights, back down, up 11 flights again, then rowing, then back down 11 flights, up again, down 11 flights. When I'm telling Joe about how much fun I have doing these challenging things, Joe says, what are you doing this weekend? I go, I don't know. He goes, come on up to Vermont. And this is how I got invited to Vermont. Partly his environmental challenge was very rewarding for him, as you'll hear when you listen to the episode of him being on my podcast. Also, he gets to hear about me doing all these things, which is the type of thing I believe that he does, not on the scale that he does. But he likes that. I do it. I, I recognize the emotional reward and the benefit that comes from challenging yourself, even though it's hard, especially because it's hard. So he invites me up to Vermont to his farm. People who know Joe DeSena and who know the Spartan race know the farm is a big deal, that the death race is up there, and it's really cool. So I mentioned to my friend that I'm going to swim across Hudson with, by the way, oh, and Joe doesn't have a way for me to get up there. Normally, Amtrak goes up to nearby there, but Amtrak, I'm kind of not sure if I want to go on Amtrak, but they only, the train only goes to Albany. It does not go all the way up to where the farm is, and that's too far for someone to pick me up from, so I need a ride. So I say to my friend, do you want to go up to the farm? And he goes, Joe DeSena, Spartan race. Oh, my God, I would love to. And he, he's got a car, so it's on. And then he starts asking, he has to make sure that he can do his, he does fitness broadcasts, and he has to make sure that he's up there and there's a good internet connection. And of course, he wants to do it from there because he will look great to his audience if he can show that he's broadcasting from the Spartan Race farm. I'm like, sure, Joe and I have hit it off. I'd be happy to introduce you to the people up there. You're a friend, I'm a friend. We're doing this cool stuff together. Great. Then we go and swim across the Hudson and it's an amazing experience. We get in the water and we start swimming across. Actually, as soon as we get to where my feet can't touch the land and we're just swimming, not, not walking on the on the riverbed, suddenly the current is like pulling me down. I'm like, ah, this is what I didn't want to have happen. But we swim across. I'll share later about the swimming experience. I will mention at one point, there was a ferry. We were trying to swim north of where any of the ferries go. We, after, we, after I got off the ferry from Manhattan to New Jersey, we then walked, I'd say about half a mile north 
to jump the fence, get in the water and start swimming across. If the current wouldn't bring us downstream, we never would have crossed paths with any ferries. Instead, it took us downstream and we crossed the path of the ferry that I'd just taken across. In fact, I recognized, okay, here's what happened. We're in the water and a ferry is coming right at us. And I'm getting scared because do they see us or not? I can't go fast enough to get out of the way of this ferry. And then I see that the people, there's no passengers on the ferry. It's like early in the morning. And the three, like the captain and two other people are in front of the ferry. They start slowing down and they say, what are you guys doing here? And we say, we're swimming across the Hudson. And they say a couple things. And they say, this is highly illegal, which I don't think it's illegal, but we don't really know. But I don't think they know either. In any case, they let us go and they just go away. But when they start coming over, my friend that I'm in the water with, for one thing, he's like, the flotation device stuff, he's like throwing it up in the air so that people can see it so we can be visible. That's a safety element. But he also starts saying, good thing you were here because I'm Hispanic and you've got to have a white guy around if we're dealing with authorities. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, could be. But that's like this interaction we have. Then we literally cross the path of a different ferry, same company, but a ferry that goes south from there. And they just gave us wide berth. And then eventually we got out. Actually, when we got out, we congratulated each other. We saw that we'd finished. We were happy about that. And he was going to take the ferry back. Now, he had this flotation stuff. And I said, well, you probably don't want the people on the ferry to see the flotation stuff because then they might identify you as the one that was in the water. So why don't I take that stuff home with me? And when we see each other Friday, I'll give it back to you. And by the way, my shoes, which I wore to the ferry across to New Jersey, I left in his car. So, you know, next time we see each other, we figured I'll get the shoes back and you'll get the flotation stuff back. He's got all the recording on his camera. I'm figuring I'll get the recording when he gets a chance to post it. Sometime between Wednesday and Friday, he tells me that he can't drive. There's some family issue, and the family needs the car, and he can't drive. I feel disappointed, but I contact the Spartan Up people, and I ask, I say, I don't have a way up. We go into overdrive of finding people that I can get a ride with, because there are people going up to this event. The event up there is an invitation-only event to do this endurance overnight 24-hour event. Several people are driving up from relatively near New York City. It turns out it doesn't work with one, it doesn't work with another, but there's a chance I can get a ride with a guy who's leaving from Connecticut. If I can take Metro North first thing in the morning the next day, Friday morning, I can get a ride with this guy. I say, is there space for another? I want to make sure that my friend can go. Yes, there's space. And I've already made sure that if my friend, when my friend was going to drive me up there, I'd already made sure that he would be welcome up there. So I tell him, I got a ride for us. Can you make it tomorrow morning? He says he can't make it that early in the morning. He has to bow out to this trip. But the deal is that at this stage, I'd done everything that I could to make it possible for him, to make it possible for me. He had an invitation. He couldn't make it. That was the deal. I go to the event up there. On the way back, when I return, I text him. I'm reading from my text here. Sorry to miss you. I think you would have enjoyed the challenge, though there was less opportunity to talk to Joe than I'd hoped. Still, Lots of opportunity to meet his team and community, so anytime you want to connect with them, I believe my introduction will make it close. The challenge of climbing the mountain was awesome and crazy. Let me know if you want to hear more, and we can schedule a call. I'm also curious how video editing is going. Friends are asking about it. And he texts back, That would be amazing. I was really bummed about the entire situation, but I've moved on and continued focusing on my business. I hope you had fun, though. Yeah, I would like to hear more. We'll talk again soon. I'll be working on changes in my business right now, but soon we'll have opening again. Sounds like he hasn't mentioned the video. So I text back five minutes later from that. Okay, I'm ready to schedule a call when you want. How is video? Can I see raw video if you're still editing? When I first wrote him, he wrote three minutes later. I responded five minutes later. And then then the next text to him I wrote was, 
two days later on Wednesday, I said, did I say something wrong or offensive? Otherwise, I can't think of why you wouldn't share the raw video. It takes a few minutes to send by WeTransfer.com or post where I can download it. It was a big life achievement. I didn't try to bring a camera because I figured you would share footage. He texted back, hey, nah, you're good. That was three hours later. And then there's a video and he said, maybe this will help understand, help understand why I haven't yet. And the video is showing his room. And I don't understand what that means. And then he texts back a little, and I wrote, does that mean you'll send the file? Will you please send it to, to my email address? And he texts back, actually does not mean that, LOL, which doesn't make any sense to me. So I text back, should I give up on seeing the video? I don't understand why you wouldn't send it and why you wouldn't clearly explain or answer what seems reasonable questions. And he texts back five minutes later, I'm very busy and I will be posting the video, which is where you will have access to it on my social media. Now, I didn't bring my camera or I didn't try to find a waterproof camera to bring because I understood that I would get a video from him and I'm not sure why he's holding back on me on this. So I don't understand what's going on here. The mutual friend happens to contact me by chance and I write him back and say, I've never been so disrespected by someone. She says I'm making a big, big deal about nothing, but then sends 20 texts to me about it. So I'm like, what's going on? I don't understand what's going on. But in any case, I give up. I'm confused about what to do because he has, he, there's something that I have a deep, huge demand for. I really want to see this video. This is a life event. It's not often people swim across Hudson River. And I'm confused about what to do as weeks now pass and I can't share about my life, this life event, without some, with some explanation. Finally, he emails me two days ago and it says, Josh, not sure if I replied to this email or not, but I found it in my inbox now. So basically, I'm trying to post this video on my social media. If you would like to use the video, I'll ask you to link to it there. As you know, I have my own business and I'm CEO building my business. The video is extremely valuable to me because it shows proof in a very high quality format of my swim across the Hudson. I have to say, it does show you very well, high quality, and the scenery is quite impressive. If you'd like to use this video for your own business as well, we need to come up with a financial or business agreement. After telling me he would do this, never talking about any kind of deal, when I have huge demand for this thing, he says, I would like to come up with a financial business agreement. So he says, I'd like to premiere this video on my platform, but for some odd reason, every time I try and export the finished teaser video, it stops at 99%. On top of that, my laptop got messed up after Windows rolled out 2004 update, which left me disoriented. Anyway, because of this, I'm trying to figure out the best way to use this video and to build a strategic post which will illuminate my business and create more sales. Already, I'm two weeks behind schedule and I'm a bit upset about my laptop being messed up but other than that, I do not have time to keep going back and forth to the video as I'm also working on other components of the business. Currently, the only thing I can think of that I'd like to trade for this video is financial and direct link to me and my business plus 5% this video makes on your end. I've never made a penny on my podcast. I've never made a penny on my blog. I invited this guy as a friend. Continuing his email, he says, also, you have not offended me. I don't check this email as often because as my main business email, this email is like a civilian business email, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Oh, as you know, there are copyright laws and I'm the official owner of the video and I will not give this email away free of charge because I don't think I need to, especially as I was being used for this purpose. I'm not happy about that. So as I understand, I invite him to this thing as a friend. There's no money involved. I invite him and I'm happy to introduce him to this community that he's overwhelmed to talk about. I would have brought a camera if I knew this was coming. Needless to say, I'm very disappointed. I don't know what to do about this. 
But my read of the situation is that I didn't bring a camera because he said he would create the video and would share it with me. He never talked about charging before the video happened. Now I have a huge interest in something he has uniquely, and he holds it for ransom, having said he holds it uniquely because he said he would take care of it, so I didn't even try to get my own copy to make my own version. So I figure I'll write him and remind him that when I offered, it sounded like a major life event for him. I invited him as a friend. No thought to charge for conceiving and planning when and where and how to make this thing happen. But what charge would he consider fair for this travel agency service? There's no second thought about my introducing him to Joe and the Spartan community. Happy to make him a part of that invitation. And I got him invited up there. I got him invited up on a new car at the last minute if he could make it there. Now, of course, I see that I dodged a bullet. Because if he starts nickel and diming other people, then that would have made me look really bad. But no thought of charging him for the introduction. On the contrary, I put in extra work to make sure that he would feel welcome, that he would get a ride. All he had to do was send a link to a file. Instead, he holds it ransom for two weeks, now it seems probably indefinitely, and tries to make money off of me on something that I don't make any money off. This seems to me cheap nickel and dime stuff on something otherwise very deeply important to me. As I said, I don't make money on my blog. I've never tried. I never have. I don't make money on my podcast. I don't know where he's coming from. But taking advantage of my huge demand and the scarcity that he created, whether intentional or not, it seems deceptive to me. When I asked him if I said anything offensive, I knew I hadn't said anything offensive. I was giving him an out from behavior that anyone I know would feel embarrassed or ashamed to be doing, to try to do something and have, to create something that would be of great value to me and stop me from doing it myself and then charge me for it. I don't know where this is coming from. Now I want to talk about race and gender. Do they play a role in these interactions? Would the guy have thrown a bottle at us if we were female? He was definitely racist toward Dave. Would this once friend have tried to scam me if I were female? I don't know. I don't know their hearts and minds. The comment on race while swimming could, would have been called a microaggression had it gone the other way. He was certainly being racist toward Dave. Was I targeted because I'm white or because I'm male? I can't say. I don't think I was. But I know this. When I share how I suffer, people consistently respond well, here, when I hear people say that they suffer, people tend to respond with, tell me about it. How does it feel? What happened? But when I tell people about this stuff over and over and over again, they respond with, you know how it is for others? It's really horrible. There's just no compassion. Now, why am I bringing up race and gender? Did it sound like it came out of the blue? Because no one ever asks my experience. No one ever says, that sounds really difficult. That sounds really rough. Or very rarely, after I say this, then they do. It's a very different reaction. I keep getting the response of, do you know what it's like for others? Do I need the bottle to hit me and knock me out? For the guy with the knife who, nug who mugged me, this is many, many years ago, to cut me, for people to stop telling me to put it in perspective? Can you imagine some lecturing some woman victim or black victim about distractions from their experience? All this is what I've talked about is, is prelude to what I'm getting at. And if it sounded like it came out of nowhere to talk about race and gender, then you haven't lived my life. People often send me articles describing how inequality feels when you have less, when you start the race from behind the starting line. And they, it feels like I'm constantly being lectured. Like, I don't know this. Like, Josh, you don't get it because you started so far ahead of the starting line that you couldn't possibly understand that people are behind the starting line. And many of these articles describe how you can never escape the feeling of being outside, being the other, not being understood. And every time someone sends me these articles, I feel like that's my experience. All the time I'm aware that I'm a target, 
that I get scammed, that I get bottles thrown at me, that I get assaulted all the time. Maybe there's a white male suburban culture with its blind to suffering, that when they, want some, when they want money, they just pick it off the tree and it's, you know, cash is free and no one ever gets hurt. I don't know, but if such a thing exists, it is as foreign to me as every description I've ever come across. I have no experience of something like that. I'm aware of my sex and race every day, all the time. How people see me as often less than human, as fair targets for violence, as fair targets for scamming. If you listen to me on, I believe it was July 5th, was it, the, it was July 5th, the day after July 4th, I was running along the river and some guy throws a bottle at me that shatters. I was in bare feet. So this bottle shattering at my feet, it's a kind of scary thing to happen. And I don't know if he's got a weapon or what, if he's going to come after me. Twice in a month, so soon after deciding to speak more openly about race. Do you think that's coincidence? I'm sorry, it was three times because it was two times just yesterday and then one time earlier in the month. No, it's not coincidence. It happens all the time since my entire life, since I was a few years old. This is my experience. I could tell hundreds of stories like this of, at the very least, microaggressions, macroaggressions, violence, life-threatening situations. The crazy thing is I see marches full of white people saying how bad it is for blacks and other people of color. I agree. It sounds horrible. I see videos of white people kneeling down before, in front of groups of blacks asking for forgiveness, I guess for their ancestors' crimes or for some systemic uh, system that they didn't create. I want to make it clear. There is no one who is more for equality than me. I hope that there are many equals, but no one wants equality more than I do. I am not an ally for others who really want equality, and I'm just kind of there on the sideline hoping and helping them out. People of other skin colors or sexes, they don't, because of their skin color or sex or sexual orientation or whatever, know racism or sexism or homophobia or pick your stereotype, and I don't or can't because I'm white or male or heterosexual. I know these things. I live these things. If you can't accept that, if you can't accept that I'm not of my own agency and aware of that, I hope you get over your stereotype and see me as a person who feels pain, who is attacked, who started behind the finish line and who on the course of the race gets beat up along the way and gets told that he had a head start and says he caused getting beat up or is some way responsible for it or at best those assaults are downplayed or ignored and then told if I really understood I would see my privilege. All these whites and men saying how bad it is for others, are they really not suffering? As far as I can tell, everyone suffers in different ways. But it seems like everyone wants to tell me I don't really get how others suffer. And the message that I get from whites and men seems to be we really have to do what we can because these others are suffering, but I never hear from them saying that they themselves suffer. If so, if they really don't suffer, I would really like to learn what it's like to be this white male, or just white or just male, like them, because it is as far from my personal experience as almost anyone else has described from, from their distance. Well, I got to say, okay, I've read Viktor Frankl. I've read Frederick Douglass. Yes, I'm not on that level. I don't want to say I've lived a different life than I have. But of the people that I talk to in regular life, if you don't believe that my life sounds, when I read other people talking about their suffering, I'm like, that sounds like my life. But no one accepts this. And everyone tells me, no, that's not the case. What they say to me is, Josh, you got to be careful. You can talk this way to me. I'm your friend. I've known you for a long time. But if you say this to others, they're going to think you're a white supremacist. 
If there really is this existence where people live this charmed life without being victims because of accidents of their birth, as I said, it's as far from my experience as any, as any that I've seen described by most people today. I think more likely that they aren't comfortable sharing their troubles and are only postponing actual, open, honest talk and action about equality. Everything that I see in the media seems consistent with white bad, male bad, but we aren't bad. As far as I can tell, we're just like everybody else. Yes, there's racism. Yes, there's sexism. Yes, there's homophobia and more. There are lots of stereotypes. The path that we are on will lead not to the end of these things. If it's the case that whites and men really do not have any problem in life, then I got a lot to learn from them. But if they do have these troubles, but they're not sharing them, and they're just saying these others are suffering and we're not, then the path that we're on, I believe, of not being open will not lead to the end of these things of of racism and sexism and so forth, but to putting different groups on top or groups battling it out because we're not being honest. And people will still feel like whites just have this privilege all the time just for being white. Anybody can see that when one group says the best thing that you can do is to shut up and listen, while they themselves are also claiming diversity and inclusion, you can see who has the power in that relationship. But I believe that everyone has his or her story. I'd like to say that no one gets a free pass or automatically feels understood. Possibly many whites and males do, but that's hard for me to grasp. If so, their story is not my story, nor the story of many other whites or many other men, and to paint me with their brush further beats me up on this privilege racetrack, this analogy that I didn't make up, but the other people keep imposing on me. People who know me increasingly tell me that my story and experience, that they're different, implying that maybe I do know suffering more than the average white or the average male. Most people haven't seemed to have felt such lifelong repeated assault from women, from people of color, from whites as well. So either I'm a special case, in which case it would seem that my voice has value, and I would guess that people would value hearing more from me. Or I'm not a special case, in which case we should recognize that all people with my skin color, with my gender, with my orientation, and so forth, also suffer too, and that voice should not be told to sit down and shut up, or to shut up and listen. And the starting line analogy, it starts falling apart. Or maybe you say that I haven't really suffered, in which case, what more do you need? How many women need to sexually assault me? What many people would call rape. I don't know if I would, but if, this, if the genders were reversed. And how many men do I need to know were sexually assaulted and raped? And how many whites victimized? But what does it take to realize that their voices are worth hearing and not just said you're an ally or you should shut up and listen? I believe that everyone has known pain like this. I believe that everyone has suffered in some way. If not, maybe my voice can help illuminate what by any definition except white bad, male bad, heterosexual bad is exclusionary, non-diverse, sexist, racist, and all the other stereotypes exactly when claiming the opposite and trying to achieve the opposite. I believe that it does not take much to pursue seeing equality of humanity in each person, but we aren't doing it. At least I don't see it in the protests, nor the counter-protests, nor in the media. Look, my issue is not race, and it's probably weird. I don't know how this all sounds to people. I'm sure most people are pushing back and saying, Josh, you still don't get it. You're, I don't know if they think if, if I sound like a white supremacist, because I certainly am the opposite inside. My issue is the environment, as you know. I believe that working together on what ties us together and transcends skin color, sex, orientation, age, nationality, and so forth, what I would call project-based learning, solving problems together, can solve these stereotypes more than marches. Yes, there's police brutality, 
There's unequal access to resources and more. And I oppose these things and I work against these things. But if you want to see suffering as an American, look at what your system, environmentally speaking, no matter your color or anything, does to people everywhere for your comfort and convenience. In fact, to ourselves, it's our world too. In America, we think it's just a bit of litter here and there. We see the skies in Beijing or, or New Delhi and think, oh, it's kind of not so good there. It's huge. It's people sterilized, cancer, birth defects, war, famine on scales greater than the whole population of this country. And not just this country is not the only ones doing this, but even within countries suffering the most, people there are contributing to the system. This system is what I'm working on, the system that is polluting our world and creating waste that's lowering Earth's ability to sustain life and human society. If you want to see even greater suffering, look at the science, project what future generations will have to face because what they face will, makes today look like a walk in the park in comparison. If we don't act together today to stop polluting and reverse this system that relies on pollution and treating others as inhuman, independent of the skin color or anything else, beneath everything else, we all breathe the same air. We drink the same water and we eat the same food from the same land and seas. Focusing on these things prior to all of our skin color, orientations, everything that we breathe, drink, eat the same things, I believe can bring us together in common humanity more than anything else. In the past, we found this commonality through sports, military, arts, science, and other cultural activity that has helped overcome these stereotypes. I think of Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, ping pong diplomacy with China, Zora Neale Hurston, Duke Ellington, Paul Robeson, Mary Curie, countless men sharing the same foxhole in battle who learned to love each other. I believe that stewardship, loving nature, battling the systems that pollute, impoverish, and separate us will bring us together like nothing before. Beneath skin color, beneath our genitals, beneath it all, we breathe air, we drink water, and we eat food. Frankly, I see no one seeing that starting point nor fighting these systems that produce pollution and separate us. That's what I'm doing. If you see me as white who doesn't understand non-white, or male who doesn't understand non-male, or heterosexual who doesn't understand the rest of that rainbow, then you don't understand me either. What I'm about here, this whole talk, why do I talk about it? Why am I sticking my neck out here? Because I've been silenced for a long time. Because when I share my troubles, people say you don't have troubles. And my life is threatened. I'm scammed. And... Everyone tells me that it's the opposite. And I just want to either learn about what this world is that people think that I'm in, that where people like me don't suffer, or if I have a unique voice and really I suffer more, that other people don't get assaulted multiple times and scammed in, in, you know, every month, maybe there's a voice of mine that's worth listening to. Maybe I have a unique experience, in which case I feel almost compelled or responsible to share. You know, last month, I think it was last month, a publicist contacted me about an author, a leadership author, and said, this guy would be a great guest for you on the podcast. Now, it didn't quite work with my strategy, but I noticed that it said that the guy was born in, not Watts, but somewhere in LA, and he lived his childhood as also a white minority and suffered a lot of violence. And I wrote back to this publicist, you know, it's not, it doesn't fit the strategy of my podcast, but I'd like to meet the guy. And we spoke, it was, I think, the first time that I spoke to a white man who grew up and had been the victim of many crimes as a racial minority, and for that matter, as a sexual minority too in his household for other reasons I'm not going to get into. And I can't tell you how comfortable it felt for the first time in my life 
to talk to someone who said, I had something like that. This is what it was like for me. And it sounded like what my experience was. And he didn't lecture back at me. And he didn't tell me, no, you don't get it. Other people are back on the starting line, behind the starting line, and you're in front of the starting line, and all the stuff that I, I should mention. In college, I worked toward that. I helped organize Take Back the Night, for example, among many other things. I picketed stores because of American involvement in El Salvador and Central America. This is in the Reagan era. People keep lecturing me about stuff that I know often as well or better than they do. But for the first time in my life, I was talking to a guy who said, tell me more. I want to hear your experience. That sounds really difficult. That sounds really rough. And I felt like I could share something. And he was the only person in my entire life, including my family members, who I felt comfortable sharing this stuff with. And maybe I should take responsibility for either sticking my neck out and being rammed down and being canceled, but I'm going to go down being myself. Or maybe, as some people tell me, I've had a unique experience, in which case maybe this is the type of diversity that people are looking for and that can help resolve these things. But most of all, I want to bring people together to work on something that I think can solve things together. I'm not going to stop people from protesting. I'm not going to stop people from marching. I'm not going to stop people from writing op-eds and so forth. But I believe as an educator of project-based learning and seeing what happens when people get together and solve problems together, how it brings people together and transcends all of these differences, I have to share that I have this, these situations that sound very familiar when I read other people's stories about how they suffer, and I hope that people can see past what seems to be my skin color, my race, my sex, my sexual orientation, so forth, that life is really difficult, and it hurts to be told, sit down and shut up and listen. Not because I think I understand, maybe I don't, that other people have suffered. But to be denied my suffering, and I don't think that I'm alone here. I think there's a lot of people who have suffered who are being told to shut up and listen, and that's not inclusion, and that's not the opposite of racism. As you can tell, I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm not sure who's listened through all the way. I don't know how this is going to come off, but I don't think the right thing to do is be silent about life-threatening experiences. Well, you heard what I said. I don't have any final last thing to finish with, so that's today's post.